Want to know why your interiors or images don't look like the ones you see on your favorite social media feeds? What if I said I could let you know and show you what's missing and how to transform your spaces with clarity and confidence? The truth is creating beautiful interiors is simple when you know the right strategies, but most people go about it the wrong way. This is why I created the Styling Masterclass. It's the only program that simplifies the art and science of styling, giving you the clarity and confidence to take your interiors to the next level and attract your dream customers or clients so you can make your creative dreams finally possible. This is for you if you're an interior designer or photographer, have an Airbnb, a homeware shop or e-commerce business, and you want your interiors to look like the ones you see in your favorite books, magazines or Instagram accounts. Come learn how to style using my signature method so you can elevate any interior and create compelling imagery, which is your most effective marketing tool if you're selling a product or service in the world of interiors. Any successful business owner knows that styling is your secret weapon to cut through the visual noise, stand out from the crowd and grow your business. Styling is something that you don't want to leave to chance. In today's world, images are everything. This is why leading interior designers and architects always use stylists to finesse their spaces for photography to make sure they've got incredible imagery that they can use for their socials and website. Come learn how to make styling not only an essential element, an easy way to create content for your socials and website, but learn how it can propel the growth of your creative business. If you're serious about creating beautiful interiors and a business you love without struggling in obscurity, this is the program for you. I'm going to share my process and give insights that you're not going to get anywhere else because I've been working as a professional interior stylist for the past 15 years. The Styling Masterclass will give you that clarity and confidence you need to take action and connect with your dream customer or client so you can make your creative dreams possible. Go to nataliewalton.com forward slash next level to learn more and enroll now. Enrollments are open for only a short time. So please, if you're interested and you're ready to take your interiors to the next level, go to nataliewalton.com forward slash next level. For us, the, the purpose was always very clear and easy to articulate. We call it everyday joy. And it is for us about creating that for our clients and for our suppliers and for ourselves. And it's about the little things in life and just doing a good job and appreciating those things and being able to create those things for the client. So the core focus and our overarching mission all is about home. And even though we do have these different facets of the business, which is the retail and the custom and the trade and the studio and product, but it's all about home. Welcome to Imprint a podcast about creating a home and life you love. I'm Natalie Walton, an interior designer, stylist, and best-selling author focused on an holistic approach to homes. Each week, I'm sharing insights and interviews about the creative process to help you enhance both your interiors and well-being, as well as provide you with the tools and resources to make considered and sustainable choices with all that you create. Hello everyone, welcome to Imprint. 
I'm very excited to share my conversation today with Kate Nixon. Some of you who live in Australia will have seen her name many times if you've ever bought a copy of House and Garden magazine. She was the homes and interiors editor for pretty much the best part of about 20 years, um, has gone on to create her own interior design practice, has a showroom and a retail space for her brand Bussati, which is in a range of Italian um, fabrics that she is the distributor for in Australia and basically does many, many things all related to the home. She does everything with an incredible level of detail and just really follows through on everything. Is an incredibly hard worker, but um, shares so many insights into her work, her practice, and some of the biggest lessons that she's learned on her journey. I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Kate as much as what I did and would love to hear you from you. As always, please enjoy Kate Nixon. Hi, Kate. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I feel like this one's actually been a long time coming and I'm surprised I haven't had you on here before because, um, you know, I'm a huge admirer of your work and all the things you do. And, you know, we used to kind of be more in contact way back when we were both working at what was then ACP magazines. Um, and uh, I feel like a lot has changed since then. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and, uh, but I'm, you know, a huge, you know, admirer of like all the things that you create and do you, whatever you do, like you just take it to that next level. And so, um, yeah, it just, I think it would be interesting for the listeners who are perhaps not familiar with you or your work, because it's a very international audience. Can you, first of all, share a little bit, I like to kind of go right back to the beginning, like where you grew up, you know, what you were like in your childhood, were you creative and kind of then segueing into that time where you're really then starting to think about, well, what am I going to do once I finish school? What is going to be my next step? So can you just share a little bit about your story? Sure. And thank you, Nat, so much for having me. And I'm also likewise a massive fan um, of everything you do. And uh, I feel like we're two workhorses who have always just had our head down doing a million things and, um, yeah, not in contact all the time, but admiring from afar and uh, following similar journeys, I think. So um, it's such an honour to be invited to come on to your podcast. So thank you so much. Um, so I have had a very convoluted path to where I am now. Um, nothing has been very straightforward, but I think as a kid I was quite creative and my parents have always had their own business making furniture. So I think whether I was cognizant of it or not, but I've always kind of had a, a connection to interior and craftsmanship and um, they re make really, really amazing furniture that sold to kings and queens and takes thousands of hours to create. So kind of a, a, an appreciation for quality and craftsmanship and natural materials, um, I think has always been a part of my um, Growing up, I remember just being in the workroom floor surrounded by wood shavings and playing with secret compartments. And um, I think that very much informed a lot of my youth. Um, I do distinctly remember asking my mum to paint my room in linen green and being very particular about a bedspread. So I think I did have particular ideas um, about what I wanted as a kid. Um, but I really didn't have a clear idea of what I wanted to do when I grew up. I didn't really realize there was a career in interiors per se. Um, 
I got a good grade at school. I worked super hard um, and thought I would do medicine and obstetrics um, and then ended up deferring from that to manage a winery that I was working in through high school for, for six months after school and then got a call from someone I used to babysit for to ask me to come and meet uh, this lady called Kay Wormwell who had a biscuit company called Mother Meigs. And I ended up working with her for two years, which was an incredible business cash flow journey. The business grew a lot um, in the period of time that I was with her. She couldn't use a computer. Uh, I was just sort of thrilled because I could print a label. She thought I was amazing. Um, and I just uh, learned a lot about yeah, juggling cash and um, running a business, really. Um, so that was an amazing experience. And I met my husband then. I grew up in Toowoomba up in Queensland and woke up one morning and decided I wanted to learn to fly an aeroplane and went out to the Darling Downs Aero Club and he was my instructor. So, so I also met Tim there, very serendipitous. He moved down to Sydney eventually for flying work and uh, and then we got married and I followed him down. So I really had no idea what I was going to do when I landed in Sydney, but I did have a few contacts through the biscuit company, through advertorials and things we'd done in food magazines and that kind of background in food. And I ended up doing food styling um, for House and Garden magazine and various other publications and books. Um, so I have a real passion for food and a real kind of, but my grandmothers were great cooks and my parents are great cooks. And so food was a, is still a big part of my life. Um, and then through the food styling, I kind of segued into interior styling because I'd be borrowing props for food shoots and then I'd be in homeware stores and one homeware store owner said, oh, I've got my house that's just finished. You want to come and have a look at it? And I ended up shooting that and styling that and writing that. Actually, the, the um, editor said, oh, you can't invoice this to you've written the story. So I had went back through previous magazines and looked at what a written story looked like and wrote the story. So I ended up writing stories and styling houses and uh, styling interiors and eventually became the um, interiors editor and houses editor at House and Garden magazine. So I've Worked with House and Garden for about 20 years now, actually, um, which is how I met you over at Real Living um, and so many great um, people that I've met along that journey. Um, and then alongside of that in 2006, uh, Tim and I had our first big trip to Europe and we discovered Basati, which is an Italian eight-generation fabric house. Um, they didn't have anyone representing them in Australia. We thought it'd be a great idea to, to bring Italian fabric to Australia. So we uh, very optimistically opened a store in Transvaal Avenue in Double Bay in 2007. Um, Tim had just got a job with Jetstar, so he was based over in New Zealand. I stayed here and got the shop open and eventually he came back. Um, and that's how the kind of current journey began. So we started as Basati. We were importing fabric. No one actually wanted to buy a meter of fabric. They want curtains or upholstery. So we very quickly developed a custom uh, made-to-measure service, which we still have today, um, doing lampshades and bedspreads and any kind of soft furnishings custom made and uh, using the beautiful Italian fabric. And that evolved into the interiors because we'd be into someone's house looking at bedheads and curtains and they'd ask about the floor rug and renovating the bathroom and um so the interiors evolved from there and that's been it's been 15 years now I think nearly 16 years um and the team has kind of really bolstered through that journey of um of the studio growing we still have the retail we relocated to Bayswater Road in Rushcutters Bay in 2019 2020 and we have a beautiful building there um that we spent a year renovating through COVID and really 
we, we really love it. I feel like I'm, it's like a day spa. We, it's got beautiful lighting music. It, it really represents, I think, our um, aesthetic and gives people a, a place to experience the brand and take a piece of our interiors home with them. Um, we're launching e-commerce um, next month and we're doing a lot of product development now um, as well, kind of working in collaboration with different partners who have kind of built relationships over with the last 20 years and people I really respect and admire and um, doing some really exciting collaborations with them as well. Wow. So that is a huge amount, <laughs> a very like condensed version of all the things. And, and I want to go back a little bit because there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are curious about exploring creativity. They're curious about styling. They're curious about like, well, how do I actually, you know, get my foot in the door? How do I, you know, you, you talked about like you managed to get work as a food stylist. And I didn't actually know that about you, that you did started out as food styling. So let's, let's go back a little bit and, and how you actually did that. Like what were the steps um, cause you know, it sounds so easy and, you know, and, and maybe for you it was, but other people, it can, they can get really stuck with that, you know, in, in terms of like, well, who do I contact? I want to do this, you know, how do I make it happen? So can we just go back to that kind of point in terms of, um, how did that happen for you? Like, did you approach somebody? Did you work for free? Um, you know, how did you actually get sort of, you know, your start in a way? It was, look, it was very serendipitous for me um, and very much who you know, not what you know, because uh, Tim was flying for a general aviation company at the time. Another pilot that he flew with, his wife was at the time, Maya Collette, who was the then editor at House and Garden magazine. Um, I had, we'd just got married. I'd moved down to Sydney. He'd invited a few people over and she called him up after the drink dinner and said, oh, I really loved how Kate styled the food and put everything together and um do you think she'd be interested in coming along to some food shoots and I had absolutely no idea such a thing existed as a food stylist uh, but I was like sure yep um I'll go along so that's how that's really how I start I came along to a few shoots and I started styling food so I really didn't know what I was doing and I was really fortunate to work with some amazing photographers who taught me a lot along the way and all the amazing photo chefs and um food prep guys who were so clever um who really I just got to learn on the job um which isn't very helpful for a lot of people because not everyone gets that opportunity or that introduction but I've had a lot of great stylists and assistants kind of start with me and and do amazing things so I think it is really just I would my advice would be to go through the magazine pages go through the blogs and the Instagrammers and find who you really admire and just reach out to them and say, I'd love to come and help you and do it for free at the start, prove, you, prove what you can do. Um, just, just say yes and say yes to everything and do everything and help as much as you can. And no one, everyone will really appreciate you and um, would love to have you back and would love to start paying you. And um, yeah, that would be my best advice for getting your foot in the door. Yeah. I mean, while that meeting might've been serendipitous, I do think though, the fact that, you know, you had put the time and the effort to create this beautiful food spread or whatever it is that you did. I mean, that, that made an impression and it, and it just kind of goes to show like, you never know who's watching, you never know who you will meet. And 
why you know to kind of do things that feel good for you like I feel like that pays off as well you know like people notice those things so to sort of think like oh there's no point making an effort with this like you know no one of importance could be here oh you know what I mean like you could kind of almost have that mindset but to kind of actually just you know make an effort and you just never know what will come of something like I think that's happened a lot in my life as well that you just never know who you're going to meet so like to kind of always be showing up in some ways, like as your best self or like, you know, putting your best foot forward. I think that is, is really important as well. So then um, let's talk about then working then at that at house and garden magazine. So again, just kind of um, recap. So how did you then go from food styling to working at house and garden? And I'd love for you to share a little bit more of an insight into um you know, what that looked like in the early days and and how that journey has evolved and some of the big lessons that you've learned working, you know, at such a, um, you know, like prestigious kind of magazine. So the journey really started in the food styling. So I was freelancing. I quickly got myself an ABN and um, invoiced as a freelancer for just whatever the magazine told me I could invoice them for. Um, I had no rates. I didn't know what to charge. They just said, this is the rate that you rate. Um, and I started doing food shoots. So they would send me a brief. I'd come into the office and have a briefing. And actually um, Andy Harris, who was the editor-in-chief of Gourmet Traveller, was also working across House and Garden then as the food editor. So he was also an amazing uh, mentor in terms of food and food styling and um, he was super clever as well and worked with really amazing photographers who, again, kind of had been doing it forever and um, taught me what to do. I had to learn about scale with props. I would just get thousands of props at the beginning because I didn't really know what would work. So it was a huge amount of work finding everything and getting it all set to the studio and unpacking it all and packing it all back up again, sending it all back. Um, huge amount of work uh, and then I went on to do interior shoots which are 50,000 times more work than the food shoots I left um, but I think I just have a really good work ethic and um, and I just wanted to do a good job as you said like one of our kind of company core values now is do your best which is just exactly that like when whether anyone's watching or not always do your best um, and you just never know how that's going to pay dividends um, for you down the track. So I think I just worked harder than anybody else and I got a thousand props and there was always enough there to make the shot work and um, I gradually learned how to find better scale of, you know, food so specific. I think it taught me a lot about proportion and scale because it's such a tight focused image and every single detail in it really counts. Um, and also plating food is a real art to that. And I got to learn from some amazing photo chefs and um, uh, cooks through through that experience. Lukey Worley was the food editor back then and she was amazing. We used to shoot in her house in Paddington and she taught me a lot. Um, so, yeah, I think it was so it was all the food shoots and then Andy would get me across to do some stuff on Gourmet Traveller and then I ended up doing a lot of books um, through ACP Books. Um, and he knew and was the creative director there and um, – so just had a lot of practice um, and then, yeah, eventually kind of started getting into interiors shoots because of borrowing those props from the homeware stores and getting to know the homeware stores and um, shooting some houses. And then the mag would start sending me out with a photographer to style more houses um, and more and more of those. And then we st I started doing these trips up to Queensland with Marie where we'd do like 10 or 12 days back to back 
traipsing all around God knows where in the country. And it was just a lot of work, but we had a great time and um, met some amazing homeowners and had some great experiences. And then I think really from the back of just doing more and more and more houses, um, Lisa Green was during that time become the editor at House and Garden and um, she reached out and said, I'd love you to to be across the houses and be the houses editor. So um, so I then started being in-house and doing all the briefing for the shoots and uh, vetting all of the submissions and um, coordinating all of the setting up all the dates and things with the homeowners and writing all the homeowners little thank you notes and <laughs> all the admin that, that went with it, um, helping pick the pick what house was going into which issue and the issue things and the covers and um, so it was super fun. I mean, I think such an amazing experience and it has changed so much now, but um, I think, yeah, we were lucky to to work in the mags then and have a great team and all the creative directors and art directors and sub-editors and um, such a great such a great experience to collaborate with passionate creative people um and then the and from the house's editor i kind of transitioned into interiors editor just as the team changed and i started to be across more of the big decorating shoots and um shopping features and um yeah kind of more kind of across the whole aesthetic of the brand and um working with Tanya buchanan who then kind of took over from lisa and is still the editor today Okay, so I'm going to just pause a little bit and just because just in case some people are like, but what is food styling? So let's just get a little bit of clarification on that, because I do think that, you know, when you're in the industry and even just to hear you talk about like, um, uh, what did you call it? Like a photo chef or something like, you know, I haven't even heard that word before. Like, I know that obviously some people specialize in, you know, doing those kind of shoots. So just can you just describe like what is a um, what is food styling? Like, what are you actually styling? And um, and where are those images going? So for people who are not familiar with what food styling is. So all of the homewares and lifestyle mags would have food pages in them where they would feature maybe sort of five to eight recipes in a particular seasonal theme. And then there's a lot of food magazines as well, like Delicious and Gourmet Traveller and um, all the great specific food makes. So there was always a lot of work for um, good food stylists. And basically your job is to, one, uh, I guess, understand the brief. So read the recipes, understand what they're going to look like, the colours and the ingredients, what kind of vessels they would need to be presented in if it was a shallow bowl or a deep bowl or a small plate. Um, work out a shot list um, of whether we're going to maybe plate two version, like to have two plates plates of this thing or just one uh, to understand what kind of props that you would need. I would write a prop list then and I would go out sourcing for those plates and the cutlery and the glassware and the napery and what sort of surface are we going to use. Um, would it be a timber top or a marble or a stone and what kind of background would we need? Sometimes we'd introduce a wallpaper or fabric or we kind of talk, look about the look at the angles of the shot. Some would be from overhead, so you just have the one surface. Some would be like a three quarter or a straight on angle where you'd need a background as well. So I guess first kind of going through a shot list, putting together a bit of a mood board and a color palette and a um, aesthetic brief of what those props will look like, so that all, all is cohesive and allows the food to really be the hero. Going out and finding all of that, organizing all of that to get to the studio. Um, unpacking it all, laying it all out, and then working with the photo chef who would be there to prep the food. So they would have 
also received the ingredients. They may or may not have written the recipes, depending on the arrangement, whether there was a food editor who'd written the recipes. Often the photo chefs had also written and tested the recipes. So they would have also been doing their prep in understanding what they had to do and how much ingredients did they have to do two plates of this or one and any prep that had to be done the day before. And so they'd arrive and then we'd look at all the props and I'd look at all their food and then we'd kind of work out what vessels were going to be the most suitable for each one and the photographer would be very much involved in that conversation as well. They'd set up the the set with the lighting and the camera and where we're going to do and then I'd be responsible for kind of positioning all of the props in that frame and the photographers there taking the photos and we're tweaking and tweaking and then the food comes in. So whether the photo chef kind of plated the food or whether I did um there's like a real art to plating food. You kind of slop it down on the bowl, um, but an art to making it look very natural. And I'd have this little kit with tweezers and like water spray and cotton buds. And um, you can't believe would Tim came on a few shoots and it drove him absolutely crazy because we're so like OCD obsessive about the detail, but it uh, really does matter. I think um, you notice when something's not right and you don't notice when it's right. So the skill is making it look like absolutely perfect and natural and it just landed on the plate that way um yeah and then we take the photo when we would get to eat the food afterwards it was great (laughs) (laughs) that's so helpful thank you for sharing that because I think for a lot of people there is like this mystery about what actually is food styling and you know I mean I'm sure most people who are listening now they've got you know cookbooks in their cupboards or wherever in their kitchen and like that has all been styled, you know, that has all been, you know, considered in terms of, like you say, the palettes and all of the different things. So I think it's really helpful for you to share that. Now, now I want to go to when you were the houses editor of um, House and Garden, because I think it's really interesting, you know, you were talking about the submissions and particularly a publication like that. I mean, at Real Living, we were like more hustling to try and find the homes, but I think House and Garden, you know, it was one of those titles that people wanted to have their home in their And so I think you had like an endless supply. I remember there were times where Lisa would maybe send features to Deb and even the other way around, you know, they would kind of go, I think this is actually more for your magazine or or vice versa. So, because I think, again, it's, you know, lots of people have this dream of having their home featured in a magazine, you know, or featured somewhere. And what were some of the things that really you noticed to sort of think like, yes, this home is it feels resolved it feels complete i mean obviously there's an extent of like it feels on brand for house and garden um and i think that's interesting to share as well how you know where you want to pitch your home that kind of plays a big role as well so can you share a little bit of your process or your thought process in terms of like when you're getting these submissions what you know were you thinking about or continue to think about in terms of like well what you know what's What's going to work in the magazine? Like what makes a good home for publication? Yeah, I think we did get lots and lots and lots and lots of submissions. Um, we were never short of our house, which was uh, yeah, a real privilege and um, just speaks to the um, respect, I think, that the mag, it's been around for a very long time and um, has a huge following and readership. And, um, yeah, we all felt very privileged to be working on the title. Um, I think... F- for us, it was just very much about the the layers of, of a home and um, having those fairly well resolved. We could do so much with styling and coming in and bringing in some additional props and flowers, and um, but we didn't have a huge budget and a huge amount of time to prep 
for those shoots. So um, we really needed the houses to be fairly well resolved for us to be able to go in and add those sort of finishing touches. So um, it was very much about the furniture and the furnishings. I felt sort of for the frustration of some architects who'd done an amazing job on the architecture of the home and the hard finishes, but then the owner kind of hadn't finished it off or hadn't quite got to the furniture yet and we, we couldn't shoot it because we couldn't bring in truckloads of furniture and finish it off for them. So um, it was very much seeing that it had those layers there and I guess that cohesion to to the aesthetic that it kind of felt like I always even now think about interiors in terms of a, a spread and, you know, an eight-page, ten-page spread and that the colours are going to be cohesive through the kitchen and the bathroom and the bedrooms and um, the sort of seeing those happy snaps. And we just get happy snaps back then. It was that not a lot of people were professionally shooting um, their projects so we could really see past all of the laundry in the corner and the kitchen dishes on the bench and um, I'd always just say please don't worry we could absolutely see past it to send us the happy snap stand in the corner of the room and take shots everywhere because we just we just really want to see what you've got in the house in terms of the furniture and the soft furnishings see the hard finishes in the kitchen and look for something interesting I think that would inspire our readers as well um, new ideas or new ways of using a material or um, interesting ways of putting colours together, um, styles together, kind of making sure that all the, the layers of the decorative lighting and window treatments and, um, yeah, all those kinds of pieces were, were there as a start. And also interesting to hear the stories. Like we would always have a theme to the issue, whether it was sustainability or multi-generational living or, you know, cosy winter layers or whatever it was. So it was always interesting too to know the backstory and we'd always want to know is it a new build or is it a renovation and is there any kind of interesting history to the house? Because um, I think that also if someone, I think if someone's just flipping through, they're flipping through, but if someone's actually engaging in a renovation project themselves, they do do a bit more of a deep dive into the into the story and there can be some really great insights in the copy as well that adds value to the reader. I think that's really interesting as well how you said that, you know, you felt for the architects because, again, I don't think people necessarily realise that, you know, architects and interior designers are submitting to magazines because they want to get their work featured because obviously it's, it's a great promotional tool. So, um, I again, I don't think that, you know, it's not just homeowners who, you know, they've done their own renovation and they think, you know, they're proud of their space and they'd love to have it featured, but it's it's actually a great marketing tool for, for businesses such as, you know, obviously architecture and interior design and, and all of those kind of things. So um, now, as you said, you also have done styling on, um, well, actually, let, let's just give a little bit of a snapshot because you explained food styling so well. And you know, I mean, I've shared on this podcast, like my process of, you know, styling homes and giving a little bit of an insight, but can you share a little bit of an insight into what you actually do, you know, to somebody, if you were met them at a party and you had to explain, like, what do you do when you go to install somebody's home? Can you share a little bit about that process? Yeah. So, uh, it was definitely needing, we need those happy snaps is helpful for us to just know what we need to bring in. Um, and I would go through room by room and make a list. I want to bring some extra baskets for the laundry and some fresh towels. I'm going to bring a potted flower for this corner of the room. I need some extra coffee table books. I need some cookbooks for the kitchen. Um, we might need some fresh bedding for one of the beds or I'll bring a steamer so we can at least make it look fresh. Um, throws and cushions are kind of easy things to just dress up 
um, a room. So all those little layers, I would often just raid my kitchen. But Tim would whinge back in the day that he'd get up in the morning and the coffee machine was gone, the toaster was gone, but everything. <laughs> I'd taken it all off to a shoot again. Um, but try not to repeat things. Um, but, yeah, there was just little fillers that were easy to grab from home. And I had a whole prop room um, in my house, but we had a two-bedroom apartment before we had kids and the second bedroom was the prop room and it was full of props. Um, but also, yeah, sourcing things from stores and borrowing things, and um, uh, which is kind of also another art in itself and um, a lot of relationship building there with business owners to um, feel like they can trust you to return the thing safely and to have a credit for them in the magazine so it's worth their time to pack it all up and get it back to you. Um, and then on the day, then it's just very much making do with what you have and um, making the best of it. So it's a real collaboration with the photographer um, who's very much kind of framing up the, the, the angles and the crops um, and then just looking through the camera and exactly what you see through the camera, making that perfect. So the homeowners were always quite confused that there was a random chair in the middle of the room and some, all this stuff piled over in the corner. I'm like, don't worry, you can't even see that. Look, like we'll show you on the screen. And um, it's a, just exactly what you see through the camera is all that we care about. Uh, for each shot by shot and just making that look beautiful. So it's kind of shifting furniture around to make sure, again, the proportions feel right and distances are compressed when you look through the camera. So the coffee table might be really, you know, all this now, but the coffee table might be really pulled away from the couch so that it looks like it has a gap, but in real life it's like two metres, but through the camera it only looks like 30 centimetres. Um, and it's putting some fresh flowers on the mantelpiece and or arranging the cushions so they look just so. And I always remember being taught um, from Maya back in the day that the reader should feel like, you know, the homeowner just stepped out and they could step in to the shot. So making it feel really like really lived in and like this home belongs to somebody and you two could, you know, very aspirational, you two could create this at home. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of, and then, you know, the throw draped over the arm of the sofa or over the end of the bed and I would always like, do a walkthrough of the house when we first got there and I'd open all the cupboards and look in all the corners and I'd be clocking oh there was a cute stool in that room I'm going to grab that and use it over here and so it's, it was just kind of hunting and gathering through the house and pulling things out and positioning them in you know ways that worked through the camera so I was always very clear to the to the owner is there's no no reflection on your home or the way you've put things together it's just so different through the camera yeah very well said it's um yeah it's <laughs> I'm getting like flashbacks anyway <laughs> um and so lugging things yeah. up three flights of stairs yeah. <laughs> yeah all of the things like from you know like yeah, raiding my house and my husband going where where did that thing go like oh, it's coming back <laughs> um yeah all, all the things um and what about then I, I personally for myself I feel like the skills that I've learned through styling have really helped me with creating interiors in terms of interior design. And I know that that's something that you've moved into. I mean, you touched on how you kind of, you started doing that in relation to, um, you know, importing Versace um, and working with clients in that kind of way. But can you just sort of shine a little bit of a light on, you know, how that skill of styling has helped you in other ways, you know, perhaps through say something like interior design, maybe even with your shop and, you know, how you, um, you know, you merchandise that and you, the types of spaces that you create. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a real point of difference to our 
practice now because I am first and foremost a stylist and a designer and um, have some amazing designers in the team um, who are trained, you know, in a very specific way. And I think it's interesting. I always find it interesting how they think versus how I think. And I'm always looking at a floor plan and thinking about the final shot. Now I'm like, if we stand at the end of this hallway, if we could put an arch here and then we can get this like nice bang down shot down the, I'm always just thinking about the photo at the end. Me um, too. <laughs> it's an interesting perspective because it's not how um, I think all designers think and that's good. Like I think you need all facets of it to kind of create a fully resolved interior. But I think it's also that final, we call it the final flourish, um, with the service that we offer because it's so much about those layers at the end that we can spend three years agonising over tiles and skirting board junctions with architraves and ceiling heights and all these kind of details that when they're right, they're right and you don't notice that they're wrong and we've agonised over them and then we arrive on install day and I'm like one house in Bronte, I climbed up the tree and cut down a branch and put it in a vase and they were like oh my god like you're amazing I was, <laughs> I was like we've been going for three years on all these other things but you know the branch in the vase was the <laughs> transformational moment um and I really think it is those little touches that um and often we're brought in just to do that on a project some some clients will reach out and they've already kind of done the house and uh, worked with the professionals and they've said look you know we just don't feel like it's quite finished and can you come in? So I think that styling skill is, um, yeah, is really, it's to me what makes it a home in the end because it's all the layers and the finishing touches and uh, I think it's really important. I actually wanted to ask you because obviously, you know, you've stepped into so many homes, um, styling them for the magazine. Um, what are some of like the common, I'm just going to use the word mistakes, but, you know, there's common things where you feel like, people kind of don't quite get it right whether that's the, the you know the styling the decoration the interior design like what are some of the things that you kind of see because I think like you say when when it's done right it's like you feel like you don't even notice it but when when it's not quite right the same with the food like that's when you notice it so what are, what are some of those observations that you've had over the years where you're like like people just often just don't get this bit right I'm putting you on yeah, the well, spot. Yeah, we get very critical. I mean, because, so, so, you know, we all live in perfect homes ourselves and um, you end up, you shoot hundreds of houses and you do end up walking through them going, oh, that, <laughs> which is that very judgmental because I'm really, you know, it's a huge job to design a house um, as I now have the perspective from the other end um, and there are so many things to consider and I think when there is an architect and an interior designer or a practice that offers both of those services, that's when you get the most cohesive result because I think architects are amazing thinking about the elevations and um, kind of that inside-outside positioning of windows and then a designer's coming in, an interior designer's coming in thinking, well, I want to put a window treatment on that window and I want to stack it on a nib. I don't want it to stack across the glass. So we need a 30 centimetre nib next to there or we want 20, 20 mil at the top for a track or a hidden helmet. So it's there's so much to it that I think it is hard for one kind of person to hold all of that in their brain. So I think they're, they're sort of things that, I've, that you know, we pick up even now in our projects, like is there, have, have the window treatments been thought about because it's quite quite a basic, you know, most bedrooms at least will want some kind of window treatment and, um it's really kind of looks perfect when that's all been really thought about and considered in advance. And 
um, the position of joinery and does that make sense in the flow of the room and would a freestanding piece of furniture maybe have given a bit more character to the space rather than a built-in unit or does a built-in unit kind of create more space in a small floor plan and kind of push everything to the perimeters of the wall? Um, I think floor finishes are so critical and I always encourage our clients to, you know, if you're going to spend and save, spend on the floor because it's you know, going to be there for a really long time and you touch it with your bare feet and it just is the foundation for the whole room. So um, I always think like it's a shame when there's a cheap tacky laminate on the floor when, you know, maybe you could have, I think you can save in other places, um, but flooring I think is always somewhere good. Um, I think ceiling treatments are always really interesting. I think people sometimes forget about the ceilings and it's just a flat painted gyprock where it's always an opportunity to me to add some texture or um, a bee groove or a decorative beam or just even a really simple corner detail or whatever it is that I think, again, that kind of just gives another layer to the interior. Um, I could go on and on that. No, it's okay. no, no, <laughs> this, this, no, great. So then what, so, okay, when you've worked with interior design clients, what, what's your process? Can you sort of share a little bit, like what, what do you consider when you're walking into the home? What are some of the things, like what's often your starting point? Is it the floor? Um, can you shine a little bit of a, you know, light on that process? So we do always start with um, an initial concept, which is quite brief, but it just is trying to put the words of the brief from the client into a visual language um, because I've, we just try to do that really quickly and at the start so that we can get on the pa- same page with them because when someone says brown, that could be someone else's ochre or like when someone says classic contemporary, that could mean 5,000 different things. So um, we usually would start with a face-to-face meeting and um, and a verbal brief, but then we'll, we'll kind of put that into an initial concept with, with references, some reference images, maybe some sketches, some, ref- some materials. Um, that we usually th- kind of think about flooring and think about sanitary um, hardware, kind of things that will really dictate the aesthetic um, of the house so that we can make sure that we're on the same page and we're going to deliver what they have in their mind. And then um, and then we kind of work through the design development, which um, is done in 3D, and we do very much start with the floor finishes and kind of work our way up from there just practically. We don't always have the luxury of time and sometimes when we're pulled into the project slabs are already being poured and um, we need to quickly get floor levels and um, thicknesses done so it usually kind of works that way from the ground up and and then we kind of get into the finer details of joinery and then we get to do the really fun part of the furniture and soft furnishings. Just quickly you know that I don't run ads on this podcast, so my only ask from you is that you can help me spread the word so that we can help other creatives on their journey. Because not only does everyone deserve to create a home that makes them feel good and make life better, but you can also help someone who is trying to earn a living doing what they love, support their families and create a business that can have a positive impact on the world. And the best way we can do that is if you can rate and review and share this podcast. It just takes a couple of seconds or just one thumb tap. Not only do you help make this podcast possible, but more importantly, this simple act can help transform the life of someone else. So then tell me how, I know you sort of 
And is this how it sort of evolved for you? So obviously, you know, you've been working at House and Garden, you start importing these Italian fabrics and then, you know, start to help people with their, you know, curtains and those types of soft furnishings in the home. Is that how you then kind of segued into doing more interior design work? And, and how did you kind of, because often I think people struggle, how do I get clients? You know, like, how do I get, because I think once you kind of can get a few onto your wings as such, you know, or, you know, like runs on the board, then you can, you know, get a little bit of word of mouth. Like, how have you managed to grow that side of the business to the point where you're actually able to employ other people? And I'm interested in that decision as well, like, because I, again, as you say, like you're coming at this from an interior stylist background. And I think some people feel like, well, you know, like I haven't been to design school, so I can't do this. Or, you know, like I think there's always a way around it. So can you just give us a little bit of insight into that? Yeah, so it definitely did evolve that way um, from the store, having the storefront. And years later, I was saying, you know, we've never spent any money on marketing or advertising. And someone said to me, you've just been spending, you know, X amount of money on rent. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's basically been the ad budget. So, uh, so I think having the shop front enabled us to, you know, gather clients in that way. Um, and I think we built trust with the clients over you know, period of time by working on little things for them. So all our first interior design projects were from custom clients who we'd already been working with for five years or more, um, doing their curtains and doing this and doing that and doing a good job and, you know, doing, as we say, and building that trust and rapport with them to then for them to be able to trust us on bigger kind of purchases. So it did very much and the size of our projects, you know, very much grew over a period of time. Um, and I think the the team grew to support that because I, I couldn't do it and I did need expertise and I did need um, trained designers to be able to do the documentation and, um, and specification and bring that level of expertise into the team. So that's kind of how the, the team started to grow. Our first um, employee had her Bachelor in Honours of Interior Architecture and um, and from there we've, we've kind of grown with interior architects and architects and interior designers. So. Um, I think to have the foundations is really important um, to, if you want to have a career in, in this industry because there is a lot of technical know-how that goes on behind. Um, but I do think, as you said, there are ways to do that and there are subcontractors, there are freelancers and there are ways to kind of achieve that even if you don't have the skills yourself. So for your first hire, was that a full-time position or did you take that person on like as a part-time? Because that must have been a big step. Well, we- yeah, well, we always had part-time employees because I was always working at House and Garden as well. So I basically had two jobs for a long, long time and um, uh, and we always had to employ staff from the beginning at, in the store. Uh, but they were more kind of part-time and sort of manning the store as opposed to studio interior design team. So our first hire, full-time hire was, um, was an interior architect um, to help us kind of with some projects that were coming in and asking us to do more that was kind of beyond me and kitchen designs and renovations. So, um, yes, it was a very big step. Every new hire is a big step. <laughs> we kind of cross our fingers and hope for the best, but uh, so far so good. <laughs> well, I, I know that because um, we've both worked with photographer Chris Warns and he would always say to me, he said, Natalie, the only person I know who works as hard as you or harder than you is, is Kate Nixon. So he would often say that to me. He's like, you two are as crazy as each other. So 
I mean, as, as you say, <laughs> as um, you say, I mean, you were building this interior, you had a shop, you'd started to create an interior design practice while working full time at House and Garden magazine. So how, you know, how do you manage your time? I mean, other than the fact that you work, you know, incredibly hard, but do you have systems, processes, like how would you, you know, meet clients and all of those kind of things. Can you shine a light on, you know, that sort of piece of like how you logistically do all this? <laughs> well, I do, yes. I do just work all the time, really. Um, back in the day, I also have two children. I don't know if I mentioned, but I had two babies along the way um, as well who very much got dragged in porticots in the corner of studio shoots and um, parked in the pram in the storeroom at House and Garden. I was like, breastfeeding at my desk <laughs> while they were sleeping under the desk so they've um they've just had to come along the journey with me uh but I just did work all the time it really back back in the day I would be kind of on a food book shoot which would be like Monday it was your prep day four days of shooting and that was nine till five in the studio and then I would get back home I would go straight back to the store and I would work till one or two in the morning and then I would go home and go to bed or like many nights I would go to bed and I would just be like down at the store doing the reconciliations and the payroll and the bath and then Tim would have to leave for flying at 5am and he'd ring me like I'm, I'm leaving and the babies were in bed so I'd have to drive and we'd wave at each other <laughs> passing on the street at 5am so it's been a lot of that um but it's better now um we we implemented a system into the business a couple of years ago called EOS which stands for Entrepreneurs Operating System and I heard about it on an American blog so maybe this will you know pay it forward and someone might hear about it now and it'll help them but um, it has really kind of transformed that um, process and structure for me Um, we the business was really just exponentially growing and I felt like it was very much getting beyond uh, working hard. Working hard wasn't cutting it anymore and we needed to work smarter. And um, it has really given us an infrastructure to support the growth. And now my world is very structured in that. So um, there are 90-minute weekly meetings with each department, sales and marketing operations, finance. Um, I have Fridays as kind of my new business. Um, I've recently discovered a love of sales. I didn't really know sales existed. <laughs> or that I was actually in sales, um, but now I've quite embraced it and I really enjoy it. Um, so we kind of quarterly sales meetings now. Um, each of those divisions has full cards, so we kind of track key, key leading indicators, kind of five to ten. We have a quarterly workshop, a one-day workshop, where we review kind of the, the quarter before and the quarter ahead. We um, have a two-day annual workshop where we relook at our 10-year, three-year, one-year goals and make sure everything is um, aligned and we work with um, – with a fellow kind of who's our in, implementer um, who kind of facilitates that. And, and it's just so great to have that kind of external perspective. He has no idea about interiors. His background has nothing to do with us at all. Um, and he's very, very to the point um, and tells us, tells us as it is. And it's, it's just invaluable to have that perspective and someone else coming in to just recalibrate and recalibrate, make sure we're on the right path. Yeah, no, I'm actually familiar with that. We, it's something that we have actually started to implement in our own business because, oh, yeah, yeah, it's, um, I mean, to, to to varying success, you know, I mean, there are some things I'm like, oh, I'm not sure about this, you know, we're doing it our way, but yeah, using that as a framework, because I think there does come a point where, you know, you can 
and you know that's been my background is that I, I'm just you know I've always sort of thought like nobody can outwork me you know like I can do I can push <laughs> myself push myself but I think there comes a point though as well is like you know well how effective am, am I being with my time and I do think there comes that tipping point of like trying to be more effective and efficient and there's got to be a better way and so really exploring exactly. those those different avenues so I mean one thing I'm curious about, you know, and asking for a friend, <laughs> uh, yeah. um, I mean, you know, this is something that I toy with a lot, which is this idea of, you know, there are some theories that you should focus on one thing and do that one thing really, really well versus like doing lots of things and having diversity of focus and that like, are you really doing any of those things really well? I mean, from the outside, it looks like you are. But how how do you kind of like juggle what you prioritize and what's most important for your business, you know, your family life, um, you know, all of those kind of things? Like, do you have certain boundaries around certain things now or like how, how do you kind of work out where you're going to put your time and attention? Yeah, it's so funny because I ask myself that all the time that as well, because I know like I read a lot of books and I listen to a lot of podcasts and there's. A lot of people saying, focus on one thing. Um, and I just talked to Martin our, uh, about this at our annual a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, you know, do you think we're, are we still on the right path? And um, I think because for us, through this EOS process, I don't know if you've done like the first few workshops where you do your vision and your, your values and your mission and your purpose. And um, for us, the, the purpose was always very clear and easy to articulate. We call it everyday joy. And it is for us about creating that for our clients and for our suppliers and for ourselves. And it's about the little things in life and um, just doing a good job and appreciating those things and being able to create those things for the client. So the the core focus and our kind of overarching mission all is about home. And even though we do have these different facets of the business, which is the retail and the custom and the trade and the studio and product, but it's all about home. Um, so I think. I think we still are quite focused in that respect. And I think for you too, like, it, you know, all roads lead to home, all those, you know, lead, lead to Rome. And it's, um, I think as long as you can see how each piece of the puzzle is supporting the other and there's a purpose for it, for us, it's very much about keeping the studio relatively small so we can really develop those beautiful friendships with our clients and do a good job and give them the time and attention and, um, and then have that as our kind of haute couture uh, of the business and then we have the retail and the product offering which is kind of the, the ready-to-wear diffusion so if someone comes along and either doesn't need the full service because it's not many times in your life you actually need to completely get gut your house and start again um they may just want like a lamp for the bedroom or a gift for someone to take to dinner so they can still kind of come in and access the brand and buy into that kind of lifestyle um without having to engage the studio so yeah, I kind of can see how all the parts of the puzzle fit together. And so to me, that kind of is the focus. Um, and I very, yeah, I do have boundaries on my time. I'm, I'm getting better at it. Um, there's a, we track our time. Um, so that's always really enlightening. I don't know if you do that, but yeah, um, that times. was really enlightening yeah. for me when we started tracking time. Um, and I try to like weekends of family weekends are for the kids and really when I walk in the door I'm, I, I do long days during the week but when I walk in the door I don't look at my phone I don't 
and I often have my phone on silent because I'm in meetings all day and it does drive some people crazy, but it's otherwise I, I would go crazy because the phone's ringing all the time. So I think having those boundaries and kind of creating um, those time blocks in the week to give everybody their moment to, you know, with the EOS, you've got your, we've got the issue list. And so anything through the week relating to marketing, non-urgent, it gets put on the issue list. And then once a week it's dealt with. So there's a, there's a space and a time to deal with that stuff. And often by the time the weeks come around, the issue resolves itself anyway, interestingly. So um, it's the, the time blocking has helped immensely. And my calendar is, is blocked, um, you know, back to back to back to back, but that, but uh, you, you asked me the, one of the questions was what advice would you give to your younger self? And I really struggled with it for a while, but I was like, do you know what? It's, it's that discipline is the key and that systems will set you free. And I think learning structure, that was kind of the pain of implementing EOS for us. There was no structure. And I think typically with creative people, we're not very structured and we kind of resist that a bit. Um, and accountability and discipline, you know, through the time tracking and through having these like set meetings, it was hard, but I have so much more time now. And I would say I have a so much better balance um, of work. And I feel like I, where I'm spending my time in the business is more and more where I should be spending the time in the business and where it's adding the most value. And um, and I feel like I've, I was just saying to you before we started record that last year was the first year I started having holidays off with the kids for school holidays. And um, that's pretty cool. That's the, yeah. Yeah. No. Very exciting. So, so what about then, well, maybe you can give us a little bit of a snapshot then. What does your like a average day look like for you now? What does an average week look? Can you give us a bit of a snapshot of that? Yeah. So Monday mornings is the marketing uh, sales L10 from 9.30 until 11. And then every other Monday we have finance L10 in the afternoon. Um, Tuesdays is the operations day. I don't join the L10 anymore in the morning and it's kind of become more and more my product day. So we are working on kind of these different collaborations and designs um, and that's become more and more the day that I can get to focus on that as I've stepped a bit more out of the everyday ops and project reviews on the studio. Um, on uh, Wednesday, we have the leadership L10 in the morning and um, Thursday, I'm usually kind of catching up on any like showroom visits or running around and Friday's usually like a new business day where I'm meeting with new clients or I'm reaching out and organizing catch-ups with other architects or kind of networking. Um, I really enjoy Fridays. I feel like I'm not really working because I just get to have coffees with people. <laughs> and hang out um, and then there are kind of gaps in those days because I try to keep the gaps and I allow like we all have shared calendars so the team can fill in and grab me but I used to do every Tuesday I was like my speed date Tuesday and I was back to back project reviews and I would have like an hour and a half with every designer one-on-one going through every minutiae of every project and I don't do those anymore but I leave gaps through the week so that if and when they need me to help with a with a critical thing they can like block they can they can book that time themselves and that's seems to be working well for now and so are you working at all for house and garden anymore or is that finished like are you doing any editorial or that's that's now not really yeah, i still yeah. kind of do yeah bits and pieces here and there with tanya but um but not in the office capacity anymore yeah yeah okay and so what about like the one other question i did want to ask you about because again i think this is something that people struggle with a lot is you know, how have you worked out how to charge for your services? Because I think, you know, so many people love the idea of doing interior design or styling and 
I mean, like you said at the beginning, you, you just said, well, what's the rate? And you just agreed to that. But there does come a point, I think, that when your time is, you know, very stretched, it's like something needs to be worth your while. So you can't necessarily just do stuff for free or if it's not profitable or if you're trying to pay wages as well, like that's a huge concern is that you can't necessarily take on projects or, you know, for, for nothing if you've got, you know, a number of staff that you need to actually pay the wages bill and pay rent and, and all of those things. So can you give a bit of an insight into how you've managed to to work out what to charge for your services and that side of the business, like actually making a business that makes sense? Yeah, well, and it is, um, I sit down with new clients and I say, you know, it is the Wild West, like everybody charges differently. There's no kind of consistency. I've talked to a lot of designers and I don't know anyone who charges the same way. Um, and we've tried all sorts of different things because um, it is tricky and it's um, it's nice to be able to offer a fixed fee to clients and give them that certainty, but it's very hard to um, to then make that work financially. When And now that we're kind of, you know, we've been tracking time for a few years and we've got the data to now be able to forecast that much better and um, actually met with a CFO yesterday who uh, who's going to kind of come in and start you know, modeling some of this stuff for us because it does start to get more complicated as we grow. But um, essentially we've kind of always worked on a, a fixed fee for the design and um, development sort of concept stages and then an hourly rate for the project management and a procurement fee for um, for anything that we're purchasing on their behalf. So um, trying to, I'm just always trying to make, like think about how can we make it simpler and how can we add the most value to the client because they don't want convoluted emails and invoicing hourly is a bit of a nightmare actually like you know reviewing all of that every every month and you know it's it would my goal is to be able to get to fixed fee or you know retainer kind of um model because I think it's just nicer for the client to have that kind of ease of invoice and peace of mind and much simpler for us from an admin perspective but I think until we've kind of some of our projects go for three or four years so kind of trying to extrapolate that data and see what things actually took and it is very because every home is unique and different and a different size and there's factors beyond our control in terms of approvals or construction that it's it can stretch out or not um it's very hard to predict that and i'm always trying to do better um but yeah for, for the moment that's our model and um yeah and we're, we're working on it now actually to kind of relook at it all and see if that's still the best way yeah, it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because like as you say, it's um everyone works slightly differently. I, I feel like in the US, there's a slightly different approach that people tend to take in terms of charging fee, which seems to be more of like a percent, or you know, they add a percentage to the the cost of you know sourcing items or or whatever. But in Australia, it's 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 very um it's a little bit all over the place. And yeah, when you're kind of if it's a fixed fee and it's uh, I mean, I've kind of done variations and it, it's tricky because it's sort of, I know for myself, like I want to create the best work possible, but it's like, well, are they going to pay like all the time that it creates, you know, to do that? But then at the same time, like then it, my hourly rate ends up becoming really, really small, you know, so it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, it's a juggle to kind of get that right. Um yeah, it's, it's yeah. an interesting one. So, but I think, I mean, I think the way we've been working is we've been working like that for for a few years now, and it's um, I, you know, it works. I think, and I, I feel like the clients here, yeah, we we do debriefs 
through projects and after the project and we like one specific question is about our, our invoicing and our charging and the value and did they um their experience of that and we've we've always had um positive feedback so um i think it's just whatever you do as long as you're very very clear um and very transparent and have those conversations up front um i think that's the most important thing just so that there's no surprises and the client understands um, exactly what they're getting and what they're paying for and they agree to that before the project commences. I do want to ask you because again I think this is something that people struggle with quite a bit you know I when I hear from people about this a lot is um, how do you find clients who are willing to pay like who are willing to see the value in what you do do you think that that is in part because um, I mean for those of you who you know in other parts of the country or other parts of the world um, where Kate's shop is, is in this um, little sort of village as such in Sydney called Double Bay. And it's like a more affluent kind of area. Like, do you think that just literally the positioning of that store in that location has enabled you to get clients who, you know, there's a, um, there's a sort of history of people kind of taking on interior designers within that kind of area, or are you getting clients from all over? I'm just curious about like getting people to um you know who are willing to to pay and and to kind of understand well this is actually what it costs and you know that you're not trying to kind of convince them or they're not going oh you know that's expensive <laughs> yes uh well and also just we our new stores in Bayswater Road that's in right. Rushcutters Bay in case anyone that's right to come and visit us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is which is a different demographic um from Double Bay but still very much you know in an in an affluent area but um we do have projects all over the place, like from Tassie up to Brisbane and Wollongong and all over. Um, I think more so now people find us either from referral or repeat, like a few clients we've worked on three projects for them now over the years, two or three projects, and that's always really special. Um, and also social media, Instagram, people kind of will say they've been following us for years and um, or seeing something published. So it's kind of, we do try to track where the leads come from and often it's a very convoluted um, path because we, we kind of talk about the breadcrumbs. Like it, it's a big purchase that people make with us and um, not something that they do every day. And it's a long, pro, lots of breadcrumbs have gone to kind of building up the trust even for them to reach out and ask for a meeting or kind of find out about our services. So um I think it comes from all different ways in terms of them being prepared to pay for the service. I think, I mean, I guess the the, the portfolio on the website um, kind of portrays a certain, and we're very upfront in that first call about the budget um, and ask them what their indicative budget was. Is when when we do our initial concept, we uh, we break down the budget room by room and we give them a low high estimate for the for the items because sometimes I think when you ask people their budget. It, they just genuinely don't know or they don't know what it should be um, or what that will get. So that's a really great tool for us to ascertain how much they want to spend and the best place that we can spend it. So they can kind of go ahead with these three areas or everything or they want to spend money on the couch but they don't really care about the side tables or um, it just allows us to have that conversation straight away and know how we can give them the best value for, for what they have to spend. Um, and I we've never really had any like, pushback on the hourly rates or fixed fees because I think I feel like it is good value. And if they're coming to you for that service, then I think they've already kind of acknowledged that they can't do it for themselves. And 
um, they can see if you, you know, I think if your process is professional and you kind of, you know, show them that there's infrastructure and um, there's admin there, you're not just kind of throwing things together and working from home. I don't know, like I think, you know, for us, there's, we've always been able to very much kind of show them the whole, the, the value of, of the service that we offer and that it's well beyond designs, you know, 5%, <laughs> it's the fun 5%. And the rest is what they're really paying for, which is our relationships with trays that we've built over the years and um, that we will be there till the bitter end, um, hopefully the beautiful end, um, to make sure everything gets fixed because, you know, I say that to clients and I heard um, Nate Berkus say this in an interview, like just recently saying, you know, things go wrong. Things will always go wrong. I've been doing this for a very long time and things will still go wrong because that's just the nature of the beast that we can't control every supplier, every delivery you know something might turn up in the wrong color or broken or it won't fit or there's going to be inevitably but that's why we're here to make sure that you don't have to worry about that we will worry about it and we will make sure at the end of the day we hand over a home that you love um and we won't leave until you love it so um i think yeah i think it's just all about about the value and, and showing them educating them on on that it reminds me of photo shoots saying things will go wrong. <laughs> you know, <laughs> furniture won't turn up. Something will get broken. Ten, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Ten things will go back to the wrong supplier and it yeah. will take us three months to track them down. And <laughs> <laughs> All the things. Um, okay. I've got one last question before I kind of go on to my final 10 that I, I sort of ask at the end. And that is, I'm curious, I mean, you've sort of mentioned about, you know, EOS and like listening to Nate Burke. It's like, do you, um, do you, have you invested in your education in terms of running your business or do you have mentors or do you have a business coach or any of those things? I'm just curious because I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's one thing to be a creative and, um, you know, have these ideas of what, you know, and a, a very strong vision of what you want it to be, but you know, it's a whole other skill set for, you know, running a business. I'm just curious about that. Yes, there's a good saying I heard from someone saying, like, show me a good idea, show me someone who can execute it. Like, there's a million great ideas out there, but actually executing it is uh, is the skill. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've, I'm like an avid learner. I, I read books as much as I can. Now it's more podcasts because of time, um, but I listen to a lot of podcasts and I'm always kind of looking up interesting people and reading business books um, and trying to educate myself um, there. We do, we have uh, Martin who kind of works as our implementer through EOS um, and, you know, we invest in that process and it's been invaluable for us. Um, when I started EOS, Nat, I don't know if you met, if you've met with any implementers, but the first one I met with, he said, um, he said, look, you can read the books and you can self-implement or you can engage an implementer. Do you want to take the bus or do you want to take the plane? <laughs> at that point, I was like 12 years in. I was like, I just want to take the plane. Thank you. Um, so it has been, um, yeah, a, a big investment, but a huge um, return on investment for us. And um, I've got another member in our team, um, Kim, who works as a business coach. She's an ex-CEO and she uh, works kind of across our whole team on, on coaching and um, training and development and we do grow and develop workshops with the team every month um, to try and kind of invest in the team as well kind of on hard and soft skills um, on like lighting and productivity and um, you know mental health and all these kinds of different things which I think is really important to uh, yeah to try and always be learning and growing um, so yeah it's constant constant journey. 
Okay. All right. I won't keep you any longer. I, I feel like I could talk to you all day, <laughs> but, <Likewise>. um, <laughs> but I know that we, we, we both have, you know, all the other things are waiting <laughs> us at the end of this interview. So, um, or this conversation. All right. Um, the, these are the kind of the questions that I, I always ask everyone. And I just think it's really interesting to get an insight into your particular answers. So which five words best describe you? So I went with genuine. Um, I think I'm quite down to earth and um, what you see is what you get. Uh, tenacious. I do not like to give up. Uh, I'm very optimistic. Uh, I'm very calm person. I, people will say that to me. I'm quite um, level and good in a crisis and um, I would say brave or courageous. Not fearless. I was going to say fearless. I don't, not that I don't feel fear, but I'm, I'm quite good at having a go and pushing on anyway <laughs> yeah I, I just I mean definitely hard working that has to be in there somewhere but but yeah yeah, yeah. I, tenacious I, yeah, yeah. yeah you're part of that <laughs> um <laughs> what's the best lesson you've learned um on your journey for life business you know whatever or one of the biggest lessons that you've learned so I was going to give you two. One was from uh, my cousin who uh, told me a long time ago he's been very successful in his career and I was like, what's the best advice you can give me? And all he had for me was work hard and don't give up. Yeah. <laughs> and I was, like, I was like, really? Like, isn't there something else? But do you know what? That's the best advice. Work hard and don't give up. And the other one is that the secret to happiness is gratitude. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I can appreciate that. I read that in a book years ago and, yeah. I think that's very true. What's your proudest achievement? I mean, you've certainly done a lot of different things. I would say my children, actually, our beautiful children. Yeah. <laughs> They're very special and it's been so much more joyful than I actually, and I think I was quite uh, nervous about having children. I'd seen my sister have four kids very close together and friends have kids early and I was like, oh, my God, how am I going to do it? And then um, I remember talking to Megan Morton on a shoot years ago and she was pregnant with B, which was a bit of a surprise. And I was like, oh, hey, you know, what are you going to do? She's like, do you know what, Kate? You're a hard worker. You'll be fine. It's the lazy people <laughs> that's going to struggle with parenting. And I was like, okay, well, yeah, I'm a hard worker. I'll be all right. Um, and it's been so much better than I could have imagined, actually. Yeah. Um, what's been your best decision? I said marrying Tim, my husband. Um, I was only 17 when I met him and I was married when I was 20. So we've actually been married for 20 years next year. Um, and I just think we got very lucky. And uh, one of my clients works a lot with um, women's groups and she was telling me that the constant feedback from women when she's asked them, you know, what's the best decision or the most important decision you've made, they say their life partner. And I think it's so true. I think um, it just really is the foundation or it can be, you know, an amazing foundation. And he's been such an incredible support. I could absolutely not be here without him and the whole juggle of the children and the work and the three jobs and everything else along the way. Yeah. Who inspires you? Um, I've, I couldn't pick anyone for that, but I just said my family, my friends, um, my beautiful team, my colleagues, I feel so fortunate to have had an education on the job and, to have worked with so many amazing photographers and journalists and editors and um, designers and architects and I've been able to learn from them from interviewing them and um, and seeing their work and they've been so generous and um, so I just feel yeah, very grateful to have had all the experiences 
that I've had with so many inspiring people. What are you passionate about? Home. I'm very passionate about home. And there's a quote on our website, which I wrote years ago, and it's still, we're just putting on a big billboard actually, because it's still exactly what I believe, which is um, that I believe in laid interiors and attention to detail in the beauty of gathered pieces found with love. I believe in food, music, family and friends, and I believe in home. Yes, beautiful. I'm passionate about. <laughs> what dream do you still want to fulfill? We have, a, we have a big, hairy, audacious goal, Nat, and that is to create a global lifestyle brand. So stay tuned for 2031. <laughs> I'm sure you, if anyone can do it, you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, I was actually thinking you were going to say a book. Are you, is there a book in there somewhere for you? Yes, there's definitely a book. There's I'm, a book. Sure th- I'm, sure th- I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. What are you reading? What's on your bedside table, your coffee table right now? Um, I'm rereading The Slight Edge um, by Jeff Olson at the moment, which mm. is really small, simple book. And like I tell my nephews to read it, it's just a really great life book. Um, and I'm a massive fan of Jim Collins. I don't know if you've read any of his like Good to Great and Built to Last. Um, but yeah, lo- lots of good books. Yep. Yep. I haven't heard of the slight edge before. I definitely have to check that one out. Um, what are you look, yeah. yeah. What are you listening to? You mentioned podcasts. What sort of podcasts do you like to listen to? So many podcasts. Um, I was just trying back from the farm on the weekend and I got through an interview with Lane Beachley, an interview with Roger Federer, uh, interview with Richard Branson. I just kind of randomly Google topics and like see who popped up. And I, I listened to this great interview a week ago with the lady called Esther and I can't pronounce her surname, uh, but it's W. I know. W-O-J-C-I-C-K-I. Okay. She wrote a book called How to Raise Successful People. Okay. And she's got this little acronym called TRIP, um, which stands for Trust, Respect, Independence, and uh, Kindness. Trust, Respect, Independence, Collaboration, and Kindness. And she was talking about it in the context of raising children, but also in the context of leadership. And um, it, was, it was really good. Yeah. Recommend it. Yeah. I have to look that one up. Um, and well, you've touched on this, but let's just share it again, or maybe you've got some other insights, which piece of advice would you give to your younger self? Um, I did say yes, discipline is key and systems will set you free. But I also do believe that, um, the secret to happiness is gratitude and that comparison is the thief of happiness. So I think it's just really important to run your own race and do what you love and work hard. And I think inevitably successful follow yeah I, I i cannot imagine you comparing yourself to anyone i feel like you're such a kind of happy content soul so um but it is a good good reminder for all of us and um i'm so enjoyed this chat it's so good to kind of hear where you've picked up off from where we last saw each other and met i mean it's been a crazy couple of years with covid and all of those kind of things um i think actually maybe the last time we saw each other was um House and Gardens. Remember they had the really was it the seventy fifth year know, or was. something? <laughs> yeah, it was like um, was it at the barracks or something in Sydney? It was at the barracks, and I yeah. spent the whole day with Aggie in the pouch, like setting up with the baby, like hanging off my stomach while I was running around setting up everything. So that must be like six years, five or six years ago. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, time <laughs> goes so quickly, doesn't it? <laughs> Well, like I said, I really, really appreciate um, you being on the podcast. Love having had this chat with you and I'm very excited to see 
um, what you're going to create next because I know it will be amazing. So thank you, Kate. And likewise, thanks so much for having me, Nat. All of the links and info for this episode are at nataliewalton.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you can get a direct download of the latest episode. And I really appreciate when you take a minute to rate and review, as well as share the love with someone you know who might benefit from this episode or on social media. If you'd like to access a range of free resources, come visit my website, nataliewalton.com. Thank you to Jaeger Media for producing this podcast. And I would also like to acknowledge the people of the Bundjalung Nation where it was recorded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. I look forward to connecting again soon. I'm Natalie Walton and you've been listening to Improv.